0: All right, let's get it started and um, with a word of prayer, gracious Father, thank you so much for this morning. Um, thank you for all your goodness toward us um, and your sovereignty over this universe. Lord, we know that we're confident that you are in control and even though it might seem as we look around us that things are spinning out of control. Um, but that is our perspective, Father, we know that from the beginning of creation to its very end, you are a sovereign Lord that rules, and not as a distant God, but a, a very personal and present. But well, I pray that this morning, as we think about uh, your role in evangelism and our role, may we find uh, the clarity of scripture to be encouraging to us in um and also convicting, so that we might take up the task that you have given us. Uh, Thank you for this day, and I pray that you would bless our understanding of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I um, relied heavily in some books here, so I'm going to give you a lot of quotes um, on uh, this topic. Uh, one that was very helpful was The Sovereignty of God and Evangelism by J.I. Packer. Um, I actually have a copy here if you want to take a look and, or borrow it. Uh, it's a very little, uh, small book, but with a lot of good truth there. Um, and then Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper and For the Sake of His Name by David, Dr. David Doran. And Dr. David Doran, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's from TMS, and he has um, for a long time taught in this area of missions. He's a guest speaker for the Masters, Inter- uh, Masters Academy International, speaking on missions, um, and really helpful insights to think in a biblical way about evangelism and missions. So I start here, our introduction, with two uh, major uh, points of discussion. One, uh, The first one, I would say, is um, what we have kind of covered last week a little bit, that uh, worship really is at the center of, enge- of evangelism slash missions. Like the way that Piper puts it, he says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church, worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of all redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And with the thinking um, along of the lines that we discussed last week, God is at the center, Uh, We do that because we want to see Him glorified. We explain His attributes to the world. We portray those attributes to the world. When we uh, do that, God receives worship. So worship, therefore, is a fuel and goal of missions. It is the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations uh, into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. Uh, the goal of missions is the gladness of all peoples and the greatness of God. And i that's the, the one part that I think uh, Piper takes too far when he says uh, God is most um, glorified when we are enjoying him, when we're most uh, satisfied in him. Um, and I just... Think about it. We can't put it in, in a better way. God is glorified no matter what, <laughs> uh, be it if we're enjoying him or not. Now, there, there is blessing for us um, that we are most joyful when we are glorifying God. Um, but the other way around is not doesn't hold very firmly. So how about we open our Bibles to Psalm 97, verse 1. Have someone read that one for us? Another person can take up on Psalm 67. Uh, interestingly, this morning, if you have children down in children's ministry, uh, Lindsay's talking about the Psalms <laughs> to the kids. and they, um, What do they mean? What is <clears throat> it's all about this exalting of God's attributes and of God's works. So Psalm 97, verse 1, someone can read that one for us. You can stand up and read it out aloud. Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigneth, and let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Mm-hmm. Very good. So God is in control. He reigns over the earth, and the earth rejoices with that. Uh, Psalm 67, verse 3 and 4. 67, 3, and 4. And I'll give you a next one, 104, verse 35, 34. All right, 67, 3, and 4. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Hmm. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Mm-hmm. And I, what I like about the Psalms is that they they portray this worship not only because of God, uh, God's greatness, God's goodness, but also because of His justice. Sometimes you will see some psalmist saying, "God, I'm glad that I was disciplined. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad that I went through this." Um, so really, the worship should be the fuel uh, for our endeavors in evangelism, uh, wanting people to know God and to worship him properly. Um, and we see when we, when we face um, um, those cults, right? Well, what is the problem with, with the cults? Maybe you can give me an example here. And in what way do they worship in the wrong way? Right, just think about world religions. Um, and what are some world religions out there? In 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 what way they fail to worship God as Scripture prescribes? Any takers? They operate under very strict legalism, the people in light of, mm. instead of the people worshiping the true God from their hearts. Mm hmm. They some cults are very controlling um, in the way that they operate. Um, and they take away from god's principles from that he prescribes. All right. Very works, they works tend to be works oriented. Being works oriented. I achieve god's holiness by being good. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. in some religions are works based like the catholicism, catholic um some even pentecostal churches hold strongly to 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 that view and the problem is god is not being Elevated in their mindset is it's God plus me um, that bring about salvation. What else? What are some other. The first commandment before God. Hmm. 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 Yeah, yeah. That's a, a very good description of all of them, really. Uh, whatever. Uh, God they made that is not the God of the Bible is a false God, even though they might even use the same name, right? Jehovah Witnesses say they worship Jesus, but yet they don't uh, acknowledge him as God. Um, Well, actually, they don't worship Jesus at all. (laughs) No. Um, They say that he's a savior, but he is not God. And so they're not worshiping him. That's why we we go not to uh, debate with people to prove them wrong. Uh, we really want them to have a perspective of who God is according to Scripture. So, hope that uh, makes it clear to us. I did I ask someone else to read 104 Psalm 104 verse 34. One hundred four, verse thirty-four. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. I shall be glad in the Lord. And what we learn about God is really what Scripture tells us who He is. Um, I think it. it, And this is a thought here. You know, sometimes people go to do evangelism and outreach or whatever, and and they share the gospel with a scowl. Like with uh, just a, a very angry face or with, with just disappointment or not enthusiastically. And I, and I think, you know, the message that we're bringing, they're good news. They're good news. They're, there's the bad news, obviously, that you, you will present to people, but um, you're here to say God already took initiative to um, bring about salvation. So, I think that's one of the important things: is that we we, we enjoy this God, we we love Him. Um, so, I think whenever we are just down and uh, we fail to to say that you know this God is um, giving me life and life in abundance. Um, so, and then the other thought that comes with here an in introduction is God's sovereignty continues to be a controversy and this is really will be the focus of our lesson today is that sometimes there's too much emphasis on God being sovereign over missions and you don't have to do anything about that you just don't have to worry about it because God is sovereign and don't need to take an initiative and then there's the other side where there's an overemphasis on human responsibility to the detriment of the sovereignty of God so I want to put these two together Um, I don't think they are contradictory, they are complementary, yet both are brought about by God. Um, And let me explain that a little bit more. So there's a long-standing controversy in the church as whether God is really Lord in relation to human condition and saving faith or not. What has been said shows us how we should regard this controversy. Uh, and this the situation is not what seems to be. And I have even put a quote there for, for you uh, from Dr. Packer. It says, But it is not true that some Christians believe in divine sovereignty, while others hold to an opposite view. Right? We, <laughs> uh, uh, and I like he said this because, well, I just don't believe the sovereignty of God. Well, y- y- we all do. If you're claiming to be a believer, you do. Um, What is true is that all Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they do and mistakenly imagine and insist that they reject it. What causes this odd state of affairs? Uh, The root cause is the same as the most cases of error in the church, the intruding of rationalistic speculations, rationalistic speculations, the passion for systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery, and to let God be wiser than man, a consequence subjecting of, of scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. People want to explain every single thing. And yes, our service is rational. We engage our minds. Uh, we can articulate the truths of scripture. The truths of scripture are propositional. We can uh, explain, we can rationalize. But there is an element of faith that you really can't comprehend, particularly when you think about God's attributes and how he relates to this world. He's infinite. Our minds are just small, and we can't comprehend certain things, and we need to be okay with that. God's wisdom is superior to all wisdom. How about we open our Bibles to uh, Isaiah 55, might read this verse, refer to it later, but I'm going to take a chance here. Psalm 55 and verse 8 and 9. And it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So when you think about it, when Jesus came in, in the first century and there were all those religious groups there around and they had their own perception of what was going on. Oh, this man is expelling um, demons and the power of, the, of Satan uh, this man is doing this, this man is doing that, he's breaking the Sabbath. and Jesus looks at them and he says, "What is the, the real problem here? Is that what I, this good thing that I'm doing of healing people, or the problem is your eye that is evil, and puts a twist on the things that God is, he's elevated and so I think when I think about defining God's involvement in everything, pretty much in our lives, I think we need to let Him define it and not our logical uh, and human explanations. So feel free if you have any questions in the midst of this, just uh, to interrupt, raise your hand, um, and I will uh, comment. So people see that the Bible teaches man's responsibility for his actions. They do not see men indeed, cannot see how this is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over these actions. They're not content to let these two truths live side by side as they do in the scriptures, but jump to the conclusion that in order to uphold biblical truth of human responsibility, they are bound to reject equally biblical and equally uh, equally true the doctrine of divine sovereignty and to explain away the great number of texts that teach it. The desire to oversimplify the Bible by cutting out the mysteries is natural to our perverse minds, and it's not surprising that even good people shall fall victim to it. Hence, this persistent and troublesome dispute. The irony of the situation, however, is that when we ask how the two two sides pray, it becomes apparent that those who profess to deny God's sovereignty really believe in it just as strongly as those who affirm it. Why would, you, why would you pray to God in the first place if you don't believe he's sovereign over things, that he's the one that is in charge and has the ability to give, to bless, to withdraw things from our lives? So he, he, he is sovereign. When we're praying, we're really acknowledging that. Um, All right, so our first point here will focus on this uh, debate between the human responsibility and God's sovereignty. It's necessary, therefore, to take a thought of human responsibility as it affects both the preacher and the hearer of the gospel very seriously indeed. But we, uh, we must not let it drive the thought that sovereignty out of our minds. While we must always remember that it's our responsibility to proclaim salvation, We must never forget that it is God who saves. And that, I think, is just obvious. I would say if I would talk to anyone in this church, they wouldn't, all the abilities and the preachers, I don't think nobody here would say that. Um, But how much should we be involved then? It is God who brings man and woman under the sound of the gospel, and it is God who brings them to faith in Christ. Our evangelistic work, then, work is in the instrument that uses it for his purpose. But the power that saves is not the instrument. It is the hand of the one who uses the instrument. So let me illustrate that. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3. I think this is a really good point. That Paul is making here to the church in Corinth because they are elevating the preachers. They are elevating those that teach. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5 through 9. Can someone read that one for us? 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 3 actually, verse 5. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field and God's building. So Paul is saying here, you know, all these guys that are teaching you, that are bringing the gospel, really they um, are not uh, the ones that cause you to be saved. Um, Let me ask, I've seen this someone asking this question. I thought it was an interesting discussion. Um, How many of you here, raise your hand, if you believed uh, the gospel—the first time it was, the first time you heard it—how many of you? Like you just—you heard the gospel and you believed it immediately. Anyone? I right, one there. all right how many of you believe the gospel after maybe years or months, um, weeks of listening to it? The majority of us, and so I think that really uh, illustrates the point that it, it is God that is behind that doesn't matter how clear someone explained the gospel. Um, I remember explaining the gospel many times to my brother, uh, my middle brother, and he would, you know, surely he'll believe this. I answered all his questions, and yet, no, uh, it's just, no. (laughs) Um, Why is that? Well, God didn't open their understanding um, and gave them the faith to believe. So, we must not any, in any stage forget that, for if we forget that it is God's prerogative to give results when the gospel is preached, we shall start to think that it is our responsibility to secure them. And if, and if we forget that only God can give faith, we shall start to think that making the, of converts depends in the last analysis, not on God, but on us, and the decisive factor is the way in which we evangelize, and this line of thought consistently followed through will lead us far astray. So let's think a little bit further on that. If we regard it as our job not to simply present Christ, but actually produce converts to evangelize not only faithfully but also successfully, our approach to evangelism will become pragmatic and calculating. We should conclude that our basic equipment, both for personal dealing and for public preaching, must be twofold. Um, He says here, we must not have merely a clear grasp of the meaning and application of the gospel, but also an irresistible technique for inducing a response. If we're really believing that we are responsible for causing conversion, this is the logic that we're going to follow. We should therefore make it our business to try and develop such technique. We should evaluate all evangelism in our, on our own and other peoples by the criterion not only of the message preached but also of the visible results. If our own efforts were not bearing fruit, we should conclude that our technique is still not improving. Now, I just want to make a side comment here. Um, you know, yes, I... I did see people giving excuses. Well, I just don't know how to answer this question. I, I don't want to go to an outreach team because I, I am afraid of not having an answer. Um, so, I, you know, I, I understand the the fear that comes with it. At the same time, um, there are people that are just theolo- theologians on on duty, and and they they say wrong things. Uh, <laughs> you know. But, but these are rare. Generally speaking, we, we don't evangelize. is because we, it's our heart that is stopping us from doing that. It's not because we're teaching some error. So I just wanted to make the side comment here on, um, yes, you need to know the word um, and to remind yourself of the gospel that you believed, not to add anything to it. We should regard evangelism as an activity involving a battle of wills. This is if you go in this logic of thinking, um, that you're responsible, you see a battle of wills between ourselves and those that we're going to, a battle in which victory depends on our fir- our firming off of a heavy enough uh, barrage of calculated effects. So thus, our philosophy of evangelism will become terrifyingly similar to philosophy of brainwashing and would no longer be able to argue when such similarity is asserted to be a fact that is not a proper Conception of evangelism, for it it would be proper um, conception of evangelism if the production of converts was really our responsibility. This would be the case. So this shows us the danger of forgetting the practical implications of God's sovereignty. It is right to recognize our responsibility to engage in aggressive evangelism. I think we should be committed to it. Uh, But we do not cause conversion. It is right to desire the conversion of unbelievers. It is right to want one presentation of the gospel to be clear and forcible possible. But if we preferred that converts should be few and far between and did not care whether our proclaiming of Christ went home or not, there would be something wrong with us. You know, I'm not saying, oh, you just, Uh, here's the gospel. Take it. Take it or leave it. And we are just making it, uh, you know, that, that commitment. I'm just giving it to you. You might accept it or not. No, we get involved. We, we realize that they're rejecting the Lord of Lords. Um, they are rejecting the, the God of the universe. So we feel for them. Um, I, I think about Jesus' image of him looking at the rich young ruler. After he evangelized him, and says the Lord loved him. It loved him, but... He, he was sad, and he left sad because he rejected. And so I am sure that our Lord did grieve for that loss. So um, I'm just saying so that we don't take the other extreme to be too cavalier about it. And you just take it and leave it. You know it's not a big deal. It is not right when we regard ourselves as responsible uh, for securing converts or look to our own enterprise and techniques to accomplish what only God can accomplish. I'm going to skip here uh, where he says, and the point that we must see is this, only by letting our knowledge of God's sovereignty control the way in which we plan, pray, and work in his service can we avoid becoming guilty of this fault. For we are not consciously relying on God, there shall inevitably be, uh, be a found relying in ourselves, and the spirit of self-reliance is a blight to evangelism. Such, however, is the inevitable consequence of forgetting God's sovereignty in the conversion of souls. So turn to 1 Corinthians um, 3 here, back to um, actually chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. We, Paul is giving his own personal testimony here on how he got to share the gospel with the Corinthians. And he says, When I came to you, brethren, I'm um, reading 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through um, probably 9. It says, When I came to your brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom or proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in witness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature of wisdom, however, Not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. So um, it is not by means of worldly wisdom that we convince people. Um, There's just a a plethora of um, material out there proving that God exists, right? Um, yes, we can look around in creation. You don't need to go so far. Psalm 19 says that the, the, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, and so they find uh, um, evidence, and they're trying to make converts based on evidence. Oh, I just need to give you more evidence, and then you will believe. The problem is not moral. <laughs> oh, it's, not, it's not lack of um, arguments. It, it really is moral. People reject Christ because they want to reject him. They suppress the truth. So um, then there is the other extreme that someone can take this. In their zeal to glorify God by acknowledging his sovereignty and grace, by refusing to imagine their own services are indispensable to him, they are tempted then to lose sight of the church's responsibility to evangelize. Their temptation is to reason in this way. Agreed, the world is ungodly, and, but surely the less we do about it, the more God will be glorified when at length he breaks in to restore the situation. The most important thing for us to do is to take care that we leave the initiative in his hands. We don't do anything. They are tempted, therefore, to suspect all enterprise and evangelism, whether organized or on a personal level, as if they were something essentially or inescapably man-exalting about it. Um, revivals. right? Every once in a while we, we hear of, you know, there is an outreach happening and there is this boom of people coming to Christ. Um, and sometimes, yes, I get suspicious. <laughs> but I believe that we should also trust that the Lord is sovereign, and he could be at work on those things. So we don't discredit um, all, all those things. Normally, people that criticize, oh, that church does, only only does the, you know, they, they do a meal train, they have this and they have that. Well, are they sharing the gospel? And what are you doing <laughs> to, to, when we criticize those things? Um, so... Um, They are haunted by the fear of running ahead of God and feel that there is nothing more urgent to guard against the possibility of doing this. Perhaps the classic instance of the way of thinking was provided two centuries ago by the chairman of the ministries fraternal at which William Carey mooted to um, the the founding of a missionary society. So, it's a little bit of context here. So, uh, William Carey, he's known as the father of modern missions. And um, he wrote a book, it was like a treatise, on, on to say, talk about the, our responsibility to take the gospel. And so he was presenting this in the churches of England, and they were saying, the Great Commission is not for us, it was for the apostles. God's going to save people the way he wants to save people. We, you, why would you want to go to India? So the, the chairman of uh, this organization um, was saying, Look at Kerry and said, sit down, young man, said the old warrior. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. The idea of taking the initiative is going out to find men of all nations. For Christ struck him as improper, indeed presumptuous. Then, but now I think twice before we condemn this man, his judgment. He was not entirely without understanding. He had at least grasped that God is the one who saves, right? That That is correct. And that he saves according to his own purpose and does not take orders from man in that matter. He had grasped, too, that we must never suppose that without our help, God would be helpless. He had, in other words, learned to take the sovereignty of God perfectly seriously. His mistake was that he was not taking the church's evangelistic responsibility with equal seriousness. He was forgetting that God's way of saving man is to send out his servants to tell them the gospel and that the church has been charged to go into the, all the world for that very purpose. So it's something that we never forget. Christ commands Command means that we all should be devoting our all our resources of ingenuity and enterprise to the task of making the gospel known in every possible way to every possible person. Unconcern and inaction, with regard to evangelism, are always therefore inexcusable. The doctrine of divine sovereignty would be glossly misapplied if we would invoke. Um, in, it in such a way as to lessen the urgency, the immediacy, and the priority, and binding constraint of the evangelistic imperative. No revealed truth may be invoked to extenuate sin. God did not teach us the reality of his rule in order to give us an excuse neglecting his orders. And I'm just going to use here a text that we are very familiar with, Romans 9. Uh, someone can open there and read it for us. So Romans 9. Um, Actually, Romans chapter 10. Um, And and someone read from verse 8 all the way until the end of 21. It's a long text. Very good. This is the core of the gospel, the message that save people. They, believe, they hear it. They believe in their hearts, and they acknowledge that with their mouths. Um, but how can they do that if they don't hear it? So going the, tracing the way backwards. Um, they do need a preacher. They need someone to share that, and God is going to hold us accountable with what he has entrusted to us. I think about the parable of the talents of the good and faithful servant um, Right? were those who furthered their master's interest by making the most enterprising lawful, lawful use that they could with, with what was entrusted to them. And then we, there was that one servant that buried his talent and did nothing with it um, uh, beyond keeping it intact. No doubt imagined that he was being extremely good and faithful. But his master judged him to be wicked, slothful, and unprofitable. For what Christ has given us to use must be put to use. It is not enough to simply hide it away. We may apply this to our stewardship of the gospel. The truth about salvation has been made known to us, not for us simply to preserve, though we must certainly do that, but also primarily for us to spread it. The light is not meant to be hidden under the bushel. It is meant to shine. And it is our business to see that it shines. What is the message that we'll be proclaiming? God is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, It's not about us. uh, It's about him. He does not devote himself to evangelism in every way that he can. Is not, therefore, playing the part of a good and faithful servant of Jesus We shall proceed then with this uh, maxim uh, in, in what follows. We try to take both doctrines perfectly seriously. We hold both to God's sovereignty and evangelism and our responsibility. We don't put them in contradiction to each other. We shall not oppose them to each other, for the Bible does not oppose them to each other. No shall we qualify or modify or water down either of them in terms of the other for this is what the bible does does uh does not what the bible does is to assert both truths side by side in the strongest and the most unambiguous terms as to ultimate fa- ultimate facts. this is therefore the position we must take in our own thinking when we think about evangelism um, Spurgeon once was asked, How could he re- reconcile these two truths? And he said, I wouldn't try. I wouldn't try, he replied. I never reconcile friends. Friends? Yes, friends. This is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies, they're not uneasy neighbors. They are not an endless state in a state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. I hope that I'm saying now about evangelism will help us make this very clear. All right. Um, we don't need to put a position. Who killed Jesus? The, the Pharisees? The Romans? Yes. Who killed Jesus? Himself. He he gave his life away. So they're not. In opposition. They were responsible. But God was sovereign over that. It's the, another illustration of both being true. Then some encouragement here in trusting the sovereignty of God in evangelism. This is a few things that I wrote when I was taking my evangelism class. What are some of the implications for our lives of this, um, understanding this? And I want to start with Romans 10. Uh, well, um, reading specifically the following verses after the one that Josh read, Um, Romans 10, and then um, I'm going to trace back to 15 here. Um, How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good um, good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. They will hear it, but not everyone that hears it will believe it. According to Romans 10, 15, 17, is perfectly sovereign on leading those to salvation. God is whom he choose before the foundation of the world through the proclamation of his word in evangelism. So evangelism always includes a personal appeal to the sinner to repent. Although the goal is conversion, it does not necessarily lead to conversion. Some of those who fear are destined to the destruction according to God's sovereign plan, and evangelism is just being a means to bring about God's judgment on those who refuse the gospel. But for those who have been chosen by God, it is, by means, it is the means by which we are saved. Evangelism is man's work. Conversion and giving of faith is God's. So, uh, the sovereignty of God in grace does not affect anything that we have said about the nature and duty of the evangelism. The principle that operates here is that the rule of our duty and the measure of our responsibility is God's revealed will of precept and not his hidden will of the event. We are to order our lives by the light of this law and not by our guesses about his plan. What is He getting at here? Um, actually, so we know that God has his will um, his preceptive uh, will, his precepts that he has given us. So his word, what he required of man, we don't need to wonder what God wants us to do because he has given those things. But there are things that he did not reveal to us. The Deuteronomy 29:29 says, the secret things belongs to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belongs to us that we may do all the words of this law. We do not know, and who are they elect? And that's the point, because I think people that are tend to be, um, you know, what they call hyper um, Calvinistic is that, um, it, well, the other they're other way around actually. They tend to overemphasize that people, um, uh, we, because we don't know who they elect are, um, we, we just can't we have we can't evangelize. Um, and that's not the case. So the, the things that God is pleased to keep to himself, the number and the identity of the elect, for instance, and when and how he purposes to convert them, those, are, those things are secret to us. We don't know when God's going to please to open their minds. We don't know if God even say, uh, elected them. But we, we do know that he gave us the mission to preach to every creature independently if they're elect or not, because we don't know who they are. Um, They are not relevant in any way for interpreting any part of God's law. Now, the command to evangelize is part of God's law, so that precept that I was talking about. It belongs to God, to God's revealed will for his people. It could not then, in principle, be affected in the slightest degree by anything that we might believe about God's sovereignty in election or calling. Um, but even if you don't believe in the election, you still evangelize. Um, now, I don't think one excludes the other. Believing these truths impact my evangelism in the following way. So, I, But here's seven observations that I think will help us to uh, see the blessing of believing the Lord's sovereignty and our responsibility as not opposite things or contradictory things. It gives me confidence and boldness that it will always be fruitful because God's word never fails. It's like the water that comes and never, you know, it always returns and it produces something. It might be that it will produce hardness um, in the heart of uh, hardness of heart or it might produce salvation. It will always be successful because it is God that is working, not me. If people reject, they are rejecting God and they're not rejecting me. Um, I I put a little illustration there, I think, in the previous pages um, of a guy that um, is making a point of, um, where is it? Um, He goes knocking the door and both of them are running because he said something. Um, He says, you know what? You mean well, Chuck, but after you knock, don't ask if they're ready to die. Because, <laughs> you know, just knocking their door, the first thing they say, are you ready to die? <laughs> what a what a technique. One good sign you need more training in the area of visitation was the, the little uh, chart there. Um, and I remember sometimes going on evangelism, sometimes with friends, and some people are just gifted. My, my best friend Hugo, he was just good at it. You, you know, he could start a conversation with someone and just flow like so naturally. And there are others that, boy, was it awkward. Like, do you know you're going to go to hell? Is that true? It, it is. <laughs> this is the best, wisest way. But my point is not this. My point is that God is going to save people even in spite of your bad techniques, your <laughs> um, even approach sometimes. Um, remember, was a my pastor used to say that there was a guy um, that uh, came to salvation, and he's he's been attending a church for a long time. Um, his family had been praying for his conversion, and he never came to to believe and then one day uh, they had a, a service in his house and um someone opened the bible and he started reading a long genealogy and he thought boy that's not a text for evangelism <laughs> you know, it's just long genealogy and at the end the guy did come to christ um, he said i so curious right asking what in the world convinced you? Well, I kept hearing so-and-so had this child and then they died. So-and-so had this child and then they died. And then they died. And then they died. And I realized that one day I will die too. (laughs) And I wasn't sure where I was going. So, I mean, can God use even our um, inabilities or weaknesses, so we should not held back by the thought, be held back by the thought that if they're not elect they will not believe us, and our effort to convert them will fail. That is true, but if none of our it's none of our business, words should make no difference to our action. In the first place, it's always wrong to abstain from doing good for fear that it might not be appreciated. And in the second place, the non elect in this world are faceless men as far as we, con- we are concerned. Nobody walks with the, the tag in our foreheads, elect and non-elect. We know that they exist, but we do, not know, we do not and cannot know who they are, and it is futile as it is impious for us to try to guess. The identity of the reprobate is one of God's secret things. It does not belong to us. In third place, our calling as Christians is not to love God's elect um, and them only, but to love our neighbor, irrespective of whether he is elect or not. Now, the nature of love is to do good and be, and to relieve need. If then our neighbor is unconverted, we are to show love to him as best as we can by seeking to share with him the good news without which he will perish. So we find Paul warning the teaching to teach everyone admonishing everyone in Colossians 1.28, not merely because he was an apostle, but because every man was his neighbor. And the measure of urgency of our evangelistic task is the greatness of our neighbor's need in the immediacy of his danger. The belief that God is sovereign in grace does not affect the responsibility of the sinner for his reaction of the gospel. Whatever we may believe about election, the fact remains that man who rejects Christ thereby becomes the cause of his own condemnation. Unbelief in the Bible is a guilty thing, and unbelievers cannot excuse themselves on the grounds that they are not elect. I I hear sometimes these arguments, you know, uh, what if I'm not an elect person? Um, I'm not one of the elects. The unbeliever was really offended, uh, what really caused them to be lost um, was their life... um, their rejection of life offered in the gospel, and they could have could have it if they would. And no, but he, no one but he, is responsible for the fact that he rejected it, and must now endure the consequences of rejecting it. Everywhere in a Scripture, writes Bishop C, uh, J. C. Ryle, it is a leading principle that man can lose his own soul. That if he is lost at last, it will be his own fault and his blood will be on his own head. The same principle, the same inspired Bible, which reveals the doctrine of election, is the Bible which contained the words, Why will we die the house of Israel? Why would you choose death and not life? Uh, Why would you not come to me so that you might have life? This is the condemnation that the light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The Bible never says that sinners miss heaven because they are not elect, but because they neglect the great salvation and because they will not repent and believe. The last judgment will abundantly prove that if it is not um, the want of God's election so much as laziness, the love of sin and belief and unwillingness to come to Christ, which ruins the soul that are lost. God gives people what they choose, not the opposite of what they choose. Those who choose death, therefore, have only themselves to think that God does not give them life. The doctrine of divine sovereignty does not affect the situation in any way. I really appreciate uh, the way he puts it. Now, other points. It gives us peace that the results are dependent solely on God. And I do not need to change the message. I do not need to engineer new approaches. It would be overwhelming to be thinking that, I, well, maybe I just, I can't be so offensive. I can't be so, or, um, or I, I have to, Really harden, you know, and really tell the truth and tell them straight, and overemphasize God's righteousness and God's judgment and their suffering hell. It, it, and I do not like that approach, you know. I think about Romans. He said, they say, you know, the um, forgetting the, the exact reference, but it is the kindness of God that draws us to Himself. Um, you know, had books written about hell. People that weren't ten minutes in hell or whatever it was, um, in order to scare people, like well just tell them that there's there's hell and, and and it's not the fear of hell that will lead one to salvation. it might be one of the components that might be in their hearts, but ultimately it is the kindness of God, the grace of God that draw us to himself um, so you you Preach both. We preach the, the whole counsel of God. Three, uh, my belief in the sovereignty of God provides authority in the things that I say as I proclaim the message. Christ gave me the right to be heard. Right? It he says, All authority was given to me by my father, and now I am giving you this authority to go and make disciples and preach. Four, it makes me more prayerful. Um, it giving me a so, sober feeling of helplessness and impotence. I cannot do anything apart from God's will to save someone. It just comforts us. Um, you know, we're, we are frail, we are sinners, we are weak people. Um, I'm, just what I read Paul saying, you know, I came to you, Corinthians, in weakness. And yet God saved people in spite of his weakness. I can only obey, I can only pray that every single part of the gospel is worked by the Holy Spirit in enlightening the believer's mind to understand. I come to God's throne in total dependence of his work in every single step. As we sit on an airplane um, and we have an opportunity and someone is chatty with us, we just pray, Lord, give me wisdom. Just help me. Give me the courage to share this. We're dependent because we know that nothing will happen apart from his uh, sovereign will. Um, it compels me to not make any discrimination of people. Well, I think that person, they looks like they're going to hear it, or that one doesn't. Um, I think about my siblings. I always thought my that my older brother would become a believer because it's just so open and he can... Reason with him. Um, and the other one was just like, I don't want to do anything with the church. And today, my middle brother is, um, you know, the, the one that is a believer and he's an evangelist, actually. Um, so we, we don't make discrimination of people. Uh, it pushes me to leave a holy life in order to not give reason to discredit the gospel. If I believe, Um, that God is sovereign. If I believe that I am responsible, I also believe that I don't want to cause people to look at my life and say, I do not want to follow God if I'm going to live like this. Um, And then lastly, it exalts the power of the Spirit and puts God's glory in display. It puts God's glory in display. 2 Corinthians um, chapter 3. All right, we're almost done here. Second um, Corinthians three seven and through eleven. Someone read that one for us. Paul expected that the work of missions it is, will be in the power of the Spirit. Uh, it will bring glory to God. Um, it is not our um, own frailties, our own um, intelligence, or arguments that will convince people. I believe that the subtle evidence that our <clears throat> man-centeredness is, is our dependence upon our plans, programs, and preparation. Giving God first place in the mission's endeavor also means that we consciously commit ourselves to simply planning and fervent praying. Intrinsically, orchestrated programs that reflect our ingenuity also tend to deflate our humility and inflate our sense of sufficiency. The biblical bottom line is that we're not sufficient for the tasks, but God is. He has given us the spirit and the word and those gifts must remain the central focus of all missionary planning and practice because they are the only source of missionary power. And I'm expanding here more, not just evangelism, but even for world, world missions. It is impossible that we have lost sight. Is it possible that we lost sight of central qualification for ministry and evidence of God's call of a missionary life, the Spirit's transforming and empowering presence? Um, is it possible that we talk more about five year plans and carefully crafted programs that we do not need for God's power through the Spirit upon the ministry of the Word? We tend to elevate man sometimes um, in this endeavor. So in 1715, Louis uh, XIV of France died. And this is the king that was called himself the Great, right, Louis XIV the Great, um, and had proudly boasted, I am the state. During his time, his court was the most magnificent in all Europe. His funeral, too, was designed to be a display of his greatness, and it was spectacular. His body was laid in a golden coffin, and to amplify the deceased king's grandeur by drawing attention um, solely to him, there were orders given to the cathedral that all the lights will be deemed, and then just one light on his coffin. So the massive crowd gathered for the funeral and waited in silence. Then Massillon, who, was, who became the bishop of Clermont, is slowly reaching down, he snuffed the candle and said, Only God is great. Louis XIV came and went, but the spirit that energized him is still at work in this world. Billions are lost in darkness, blighted by the God of this world, so that they do not need to, to see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Unless we revive our commitment to the principle that God alone is great, we will not rise to the challenges of missions in the 21st century. Unless our souls burn within us with a holy jealousy at the sight of false worship and with all-consuming passion to see Christ exalted, we will not pay the price that biblical missions demands. Um, I think about Paul when he visited um, Athens and he's looking around to all those false gods, and his heart is just burning. I cannot live with this. I cannot see people worshiping a false god. They're blind. They don't know what they're doing. They need the true God. Um, when David Doran, this uh, one of the authors that I'm, I'm mentioning here, wrote his book on "For the Sake of a Call," the President of the United States had called. This country to defend itself against the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. So, this was uh, a long time ago that he wrote this book. And he says, Thousands of military personnel were being deployed to the other side of the globe, and millions more back home were firmly committed to back them in their task. He believed the cause was right, but he was troubled by the fact, and I'm talking about David Doran, he says, he, he was encouraged that people would take that initiative and to fight terrorism, you know, and send uh, man to fight and women as well. But he was troubled by the fact that many American Christians would not hesitate to send their sons into battle for the American way of life, did hesitate to consider sending them to the mission fields of the world. The Lord of Lord has called us to take his name to the ends of the earth, and if he is supreme in our lives, we will heed his call. We will go, we will send, we will give, and we will pray all for the sake of his name. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for um, your words that are both convicting and encouraging. Lord, we're thankful for your sovereignty that we don't need to worry about um, the condition of one person or another. We don't need to discriminate them. Those things are secret to us. We don't know how many um, or when some will be saved. But we do know that you have given us a mission to um, proclaim your words and to make disciples. Lord, I I do pray, Lord, that you would make that burning in our heart, that desire, um, to even know more how we can um, implement um, or to teach accurately the words of God, and how you can use that to save people in our jobs, in our um, in our families, in every opportunity, Lord, that you provide for us, and even for those not so much opportune times, that we may create uh, ways and and means of um, of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that even as we move in the weeks ahead, uh, that we continue to give us this desire and to go and to actually do something. And we pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.